Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and welcome to the IFG podcast. I'm your host, Ibrahim Khan. And with me today, we have a very, very interesting guest. He is Sheikh Umar Khan, who is currently resident in the USA. He is the vice president of SpaceX, but also, mashallah, he has memorized the Quran and has specialized in the 14 qiraat of the Quran. He's also finished his Dars al-Nidami. He did his iftar as well. So he's both an alim and a mufti. Uh, he actually serves on the board of a number of different companies at this point as well. And uh, mashallah, um, Sheikh Umar, he also teaches you know, the Islamic sciences and others in various different seminaries alongside the full-time tech career that you have. Welcome to the show. Assalamualaikum, Ibrahim. Jazakallah khair. I'm excited to be here today. So, Sheikh Umar, you know, you have done a fair amount in your career, both from a, I guess, a career perspective, but also from an Islamic perspective. And I think the key question I had was, you know, whilst you were on this journey in your career, and alhamdulillah, you know, it's gone really well. Was there a turning point? Was there a key point in your career where you figured, you know, I actually also want to go down this route of Islamic studies and, you know, going down that scholarship route? Yeah, absolutely. It was not always like this. So there was definitely a turning point. And uh, to be honest, I could not have imagined myself where I am right now had you asked me 20 years ago. It's funny because when we first got married, my wife would encourage me to attend Islamic lectures and asked me if we could uh, travel a bit of a distance from our house to learn Arabic. And none of that had any attraction or appeal to me. Uh, her turning point had come in her university where she attended the Muslim Students Association. Whereas my experience with my Muslim Student Association was, it was just a Arab only group of Muslims who would always refer to me as brother, brother. And I didn't understand why they would do that because I was younger than them. So honestly, it wasn't until Hajj in 2003 that things really changed for me. And we were blessed to have Sheikh Zahid Rashid as our group leader. He was this young student of knowledge, just obsessed with learning knowledge and how to apply it. And he had this amazing zeal, a very sincere zeal to follow the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. How did the Prophet ﷺ do this? How did he do that? So when he spent a lot of time with our family, teaching us and answering questions and just being a great example of following the sunnah, that left quite an impact on me. And he asked me some very basic questions about Islam, and I was stumbling through those. So I decided that when I come back to the U.S., I will, inshallah, go ahead and study Islam at least a little bit. And so he had suggested some books. When I came back, I devoured them upon my return. And then my wife and I enrolled in some classes at the masjid and went to Al-Maghrib. And as my knowledge increased, I realized how little I knew about Islam, and that thirst continued to increase more and more. So anyway, I think the big turning point was at 32 years old, I had just finished a full-time master's while working 60 hours a week at my job. And I was a parent of two with a third on the way. And I realized at that point that if I could do all of this for dunya purposes, a full-time master's, a full-time job, full-time family, et cetera, why can't I do something like this for Allah? So that's when my true journey of knowledge began. I started memorizing Quran, learning Arabic, studying classical books, and eventually pursued scholarship and became a mufti. But to be honest with you, you know, there was one factor that was the most important underscoring all of this. 
And that's my mother, may Allah bless her. She was making dua for me even before I was born. So she would make dua that I memorize Quran, that I become an imam of the muttaqis. And people ask her, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, so she tried so hard to get me to memorize Quran when I was a child, and it never, ever worked out. So who could have imagined that her prayers would be answered and that I would start memorizing Quran and learning Arabic at the age of 32 and then go on to learn Islamic studies. So I think I'm a living example of how parents' dua works because I know that without that, neither my dunya achievements nor my deen milestones could ever been accomplished. And how long did it take, Sheikh Umar, to, you know, from the age of 32, you kicked off to do your hifth and then you did your alim and ifta. How long has that journey taken you? And I guess you're still on it, but like, how long has it taken you? You know, at an older age, when you memorize Quran, it takes a very long time. So I see how my kids do it. My eldest finished memorizing Quran. It was so easy for him. And I'm just jealous looking at him like, mashallah, like I wish I had done it at a younger age. But at the age at which my wife and I, we both started at age 32, it took us five years just to memorize Quran. And uh, that was a lot of hard work. And, uh, you know, inshallah, we'll talk more about that. Definitely. And I think there's like a Arabic saying, that that you're drawing on water and it just kind of disappears. So it's a, I guess you experienced that. I wanted to ask a little bit about, you know, it was a long, hard journey. How did you stay motivated throughout that journey? And, you know, what would your advice be for other people who are just about to, let's say, embark on it or who have just embarked on it? You know, Islamic studies has become very fashionable nowadays. And especially when I look at a place like the UK, I see so many institutions being built and so many programs being offered. Alhamdulillah. That's a really good thing, mashallah. We also see a lot more people memorizing Quran and learning Arabic. But in so many of these cases, I will ask someone who's studying or memorizing or doing Arabic, what plan do you have afterwards? What's your goal? What's your big objective? And too many times the answer is none. Like they have no answer. This isn't true in all cases, right? But it's just way too common. People are studying, they're memorizing and learning Arabic, but these are all a means to something, not an end. So I mean, no doubt every Muslim has some minimal base level of knowledge that they should all have. But when you're going beyond that, doing something like advanced Islamic studies or memorizing Quran, then it's important to know why you are doing it and what you plan to do afterwards. Because as Muslims, our objective is to be the best possible abd of Allah, the best possible worshiper. And each of us has our own unique way of doing this. So some people are passionate about civil rights activism. Others love to write articles, create documentaries about Islam. Some are active in the field of da'wah to non-Muslims. And some people do philanthropy with money or whatever their passion might be, right? So Islamic studies and all of these things, this is not for everybody. So I just wanted to make a point that, number one, people should pursue that which aligns with their interests and their skills, and not just what their friends might be doing or what others in the community might be doing. But, but getting back to your question, what was my motivation, right? I have always personally been passionate about researching and teaching. It's something that I enjoy doing. And it's something that benefits the world. So I felt that this would be my personal way of doing something for Allah while benefiting the community. And that's at the macro level. And I think it's extremely important to have that, that macro level, top level goal to keep you on track. But once you've established that goal, that purpose, the reason for what you're doing, 
then there's also motivation at the micro level. And maybe that's where your question was headed as well, is how do we deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis? Because one day you wake up, you're really motivated, you want to go memorize Arabic verb forms or study all the different rulings of the Madahib and Tahara or whatever it might be. And another day you're tired and maybe you just don't want to do that much. So once we've determined our big, major, noble goals and we're working towards an objective, it's really hard work to get there. And you cannot wait for motivation to kick in. You just have to do it. If you wait for motivation, nothing will happen. I remember I watched a TED talk many years ago that if you want to succeed, do not wait for motivation. And in fact, you and I have a common teacher, Sheikh Akram Nadwi, who says so beautifully, he says, it is bad manners to wait for motivation. I just love that he says that. So he constantly reminds us and he says, force yourself to do what you have to do. So whenever I feel a little bit lazy, I can hear Sheikh Akram's voice in my head telling me, force yourself. And that's what I try to do. No, that's amazing. I remember a friend of mine, he said that whenever I used to see Sheikh Akram walking around, he'd be reading, <laughs> even like on the roads. So yeah, definitely. I know he's a, he's a man who pushes himself. Yeah. Is it talking about teachers? You mentioned Sheikh Akram. Who were you know some of your other key teachers or you know the, your key teachers when it came to Islamic studies? And what were the other lessons that you learned from them that have really helped you in your life? Alhamdulillah, I've been blessed to learn from I think some of the best teachers and scholars in the in their respective fields. So I'd say number one would be Ustad Abadia, who I memorized Quran with. She has this amazing passion and zeal for teaching the Book of Allah. And that really rubbed off on me and influenced me so much. Most of all, though, she taught me how to have the dedication, the discipline, and the focus. Because without that type of Quran coaching, without that type of discipline, there's just no other way for someone like me or myself or myself or my wife to have memorized Quran at such a late age. But I think one of the common factors that I have and the teachers that I adore, and alhamdulillah, I've been blessed to have them, is teachers who encourage critical thinking. And so one of my earliest teachers was uh, Sheikh Yasir Fazaka. And I remember doing Bible studies with him. So we would sit down in the masjid and we would read about, for example, Prophet Adam from the Bible. And then we would read the same passages from the Quran and we would compare and contrast. Really fun class. But his classes were always just filled with questions you would ask us. And those were some of the most memorable moments. Um, similarly, I would say Sheikh Osman Khan in Canada, he challenged us. Every time we would be in class, he would force us to take one side of an argument and think from that perspective. Then he would give us the other side of the argument. So he would teach us aqidah and he would say, okay, how do the Ashwaris think? How do the Asharis think? How do the Maturidis think? How do the Mu'tazilis think? And he would force us to get into their shoes. And he would say, if you were one of them, what would you believe and why would you believe it? So he had this really great way of teaching us different perspectives. And then Sheikh Akram, what can I say about him? You know, I work for Elon Musk and everyone thinks they know Elon because they read his tweets. But in real life, Elon is different than what you see on Twitter. He's really a genius. So Alhamdulillah, I've worked with him for eight and a half years. And I've learned from him what people call first principles thinking, right? You start from the bottom and you work your way up. But the person who has taught me most how to apply first principles in Islam would be Sheikh Akram. Because he always says, think properly. Uh, just constantly, people smile every time I say that. It's like, think properly. What does that mean? He means don't just take things blindly. Just because you've read something, just because you've studied something, someone said something to you, apply your brain. Think about why. When Allah says in the Quran, do X, Y, Z, think about why does Allah want you to do that? When Allah says, 
in the Quran, you know, ABC, why is Allah saying that in the first place? So think, think, think. And he makes us go back to the original sources, always encouraging us, don't just pick up that English translation of a contemporary book, which is actually based off an Arabic muhtasar or a condensed book, which is actually written off of a commentary of yet another book, which is based off another condensed book. Go back to the original, go back to the Quran, go back to the Sunnah, go back to the original books of Hadith and Fiqh, learn from there, reduce the errors that might have taken place through transmission and get a less diluted message. This overall focus on critical thinking is, I guess, what I learned heavily from my teachers and I try to incorporate it in my own teaching. So when I'm sitting in class, I'm telling my students to think, I'm asking them a lot of questions. So in the middle of an Asul al-Fiqh discussion, I might say, by the way, why are we studying this? And it sometimes really throws the students off and they go, okay, uh, yeah, why are we studying this? And so it gets them to step out, forces them to think, because I think this is one of the key ingredients that has disappeared from madrasas around the world. And there's too much emphasis on rote learning and not enough on thinking. And that's just, antithetical to our deen, because Allah says in the Quran again and again, you know, so there's a lot of force, uh, focus on thinking, reflection, and use of our mind. And uh, Sheikh Umar, so I'm thinking we should talk a little bit about your experience at SpaceX. And, you know, you mentioned you work with Elon Musk. I'd love to hear a bit more about you know, your, and we obviously talked about what you do before the call as well. I think it'd be fascinating for people to hear about what your job actually entails and what it is like in working in a, a high paced and relatively prominent tech company and how you fared over the years that you've been there. Sure. So, my responsibility is I describe to people it's dealing with technology that doesn't fly. So, I'm not responsible for designing the rockets or the spaceships or the satellites and the things that fly, but I'm responsible for all of the technology and the security for things that don't fly. So that would be the launch pads or for people that aren't familiar, we make the only rockets in the world that fly, deliver their payload, and they land on an autonomous drone ship. So there's a a ship that's in the middle of the ocean and the rocket actually comes back and, and lands on it. And so it's the launch pads, the test stands, the systems that control the launch and all of the systems that we use for design and the security around them. And uh, eight and a half years at SpaceX, it has been quite an experience. Elon is a, a demanding person. He is an intelligent person and he's a person who just never stops challenging you. So every time you meet with him, every time you present something to him, every time you share something with him, he will leave you with you learning something. I remember very early, for example, I think maybe it was at the time I was three months into the job and uh, we were talking about something and SpaceX at the time would fly maybe twice a year in terms of rockets. Now we fly closer to 40 times a year. Anyway, we're sitting there having a conversation and Elon says, what you are talking about will not scale to when we're flying a thousand times a year. And I'm thinking to myself, we fly twice a year and he's telling me this will not scale to a thousand times a year. And in my mind, this is a problem that could be solved years later, but in his mind, he's trying to solve this problem now. And it was just such an interesting perspective. And I think that taught me a lot. There's another time, I think this was also like six months into the job where I'm sitting there and I designed one of the simplest solutions for a particular problem that SpaceX had. And I had removed 90% of the parts. So we had a very complex I can't describe the problem, but we had a very complex problem I was trying to solve. And I had removed 90% of what was in there because Elon likes simplicity. 
And I was so happy and so proud to share that with him. And he goes, your solution is too complex. <laughs> and I go, I have removed 90% of the parts. And he goes, yes, but you could have removed one more and you could have gotten to 98%. And so <laughs> it's just very interesting to learn from this man who consistently challenges you and shows you how you can do things differently. And his perspective basically is don't look at how other people are doing things. That's what he calls reasoning by analogy. When you're looking at how other people are doing things, you're copying them, you're emulating them, and your bar is low because you're always comparing, hey, I'm doing something 10% better than this other company, or I'm doing something you know, 15% better than this other person. But when the bar is yourself and the only constraints are the laws of physics, then you will end up with a solution that is far superior. So you end up with solutions that are 80% better, 90% better. Amazing. That's a really, really interesting insight. And Sheikhama, you've you're working in a relatively senior position. So you know, you mentioned that you there's long hours involved and it can be quite, I guess, unfriendly sometimes for in terms of hours. How did you manage that alongside your studies and you have a family of four? What are the ways that you manage to cope and juggle through that? It's a good question. I guess I should start by saying that, firstly, I don't think I myself had anything to do with the success. Number one, it came from the blessings of Allah. And number two, it came from the dua of my parents, because I do believe dua has constantly made what's impossible for me possible. I can think of so many times where I've gone in for a secular exam or a certification test, or even an Islamic studies paper, walking out thinking that I've completely failed it. And then in the end, somehow I get an A. So these are miracles that can only be possible through dua because I have no other explanation for what happened. But as the Prophet is reported to have said, we need to tie our camel too. So one of the key factors that I've applied is focus. I know I'm not superhuman. I have my limitations. And even though my goals are extremely varied, what I try to do at any given time in my life is hone in on three, maximum four or five areas and not deviate from those. And one of them is always family. So for example, when I was memorizing Quran, people would come and ask, how are you doing this? And I would respond, I have four areas of focus, family, work, Quran, and Arabic. That's it. So that's been my strategy is pick a few things, only do those and do them well, and then everything else falls in place. So that means you have to say no to a lot of things, dinners, speaking engagements, hanging out with friends. These are all good things to do. I like doing them. But for periods of time in your life, I know I've had to sacrifice these and I know there were periods of time, like when we were memorizing Quran, where people probably looked at my wife and I and they said, oh, these guys are a bit weird. But for us, that was okay, because we knew it's temporary. And if we put in that effort, then we could achieve our goals. And so since then, I've just applied the same formula and continued to follow the same path, which I think may be extreme for some people. But then for other people, they might even be more extreme, I think, than I am. So each of us has our own journey. And... Each of us has our own way of doing this, but I think the focus principle can be applied to all. I mean, other than that, it was pretty standard productivity stuff, right? So if you have a TV, play video games, spend time on social media, get off. My wife and I got off TV decades ago and, oh my God, we saved so many hours a day. Uh, and then also in the office environment, I've just noticed ever since I've worked in 1997 that the atmosphere is one of socialization. So 
whether it's in the break room or people walking to the cubicle, people spend so much time talking and then they end up either missing deadline or more commonly, they just end up working long hours. So when I go to the office, I just focus. Other things, obviously turning off uh, smartphone notifications, making your daily to-do lists, developing consistent habits, blocking off time. One of the more important things that I think my wife and I did also was getting family on board. So obviously getting your spouse on board and uh, you have to take care of your work obligations, your family obligations, but getting your family on board when you're going on these journeys to make sure they understand, hey, I'm memorizing Quran, I need time, please support me. And then making use of time after Fajr, time of Barakah, and, uh, you know, honestly, I've never heard of someone mention that they memorize Quran without the Hajjah being involved. So either the person themselves memorizing prayed the Hajjah or their parents were praying it for them. So I think that's important. Another one would be sleep. So optimizing sleep cycles, uh, getting biphasic sleep, getting your naps in the day, a lot of different uh, productivity techniques. But one more thing I want to add here, which is I think each of us has our own standards of productivity. So like Elon says about analogy, don't compare yourself to others. Compete with yourself to do better. Are you being the best version of yourself? And I think that's the question I kept asking myself and I keep asking my question uh, myself is, am I being the best version of myself? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I mean, let's now get really granular, Sheikh Umar, because I think that that will help give a sense to people and maybe perhaps something to aspire to. So what would your average day look like in terms of, you know, when do you wake up and how do you split up the day? You're talking about now or back when I was going on some of these journeys? Whatever you think will be most helpful for people. Sure. So a typical day would uh, involve waking up before Fajr, using that time to do some Quran review, uh, getting through Fajr. So there's always this dilemma of, do I go to the masjid and pray Fajr over there? Or do I spend that time waking up my family because I've got four kids and pray at home? And so I always go through and, and wake my kids up and we pray at home, alhamdulillah. So pray Fajr, go through, and then that's the morning time when you're on any journey of knowledge or building mastery or experience, that's the time to get it done. So if I need to write a research paper, publish a fatwa, learn something new, that's when the mind is fresh. And sorry, you have a, yeah, go ahead. What time is Fajr where you live? Fajr time can vary throughout the year. And so the goal and the objective is usually to wake up before Fajr. So the idea is wake up around 5 a.m. Right. Sometimes 4.30 a.m., depending on what time Fajr is. So those are the morning time hours filled with barakah, no distractions. I try to get outside and, you know, the birds are chirping. It's really nice. It's just the, the perfect time to get work done. So usually it's uh, a lot of people wake up, they go out for a walk or exercise. I leave, I leave that for later in the day. The morning hours are getting quality, steady or work done. And then after that, usually is sometimes it's breakfast with the kids, depending on the timing. Sometimes it's not. And then it's off to work. And work goes on for many hours. So usually I'm not home until... When do you leave for work and when do you come back? My objective is to leave for work by 8. Okay. And usually I would be back by about 6.30. So I leave 6.30 or 7, depending on uh, the time of the year and what traffic is like and so on. And during these drives, it's also multitasking. So, you know, we know there's this whole myth of multitasking. So the question becomes, when can you multitask? When can you single task? And certainly when you're driving, that's the perfect time to multitask. So I'm doing my own Quran review, or I'm listening to one of the kids Quran review, or we're working on some homework, or 
whatever it might be. But usually on the way to work, I'm doing my own Quran. On the way back, I am working with one of the kids. And uh, when I come back home, that's the time to spend with family. So there's only two to three hours that you have before you get into bed. So it's usually working with them on homework, having conversations with them, having dinner with them always. Uh, family dinner is very important to us. So sitting down together and maybe covering a hadith. So I'll do a hadith in Arabic. The kids will translate. We'll discuss it, reflect upon it together. And after they get into bed, it's extremely important that I get uh, quality time with the wife. So every single night, my wife and I, years ago, we made it a point that we will spend time with each other. And uh, it's a great time that we look forward to so we can just unwind and share whatever we want to share and continue to invest in our relationship. So we get that time for maybe 45 minutes, one hour. And at that point, it's back to quote unquote work for me. So whether it's work for SpaceX, whether it's further studies that continues late into the night. And that's the time also when I might go out for exercise. So I'll usually go out for a walk or lift some weights and uh, that continues late into the night. And then it's back into bed. What's uh, late into the night? <laughs> you know, you're, you're asking questions that I'm trying to avoid because sleep is very important, right? And having good sleep habits is something that really helps you get your whole schedule right. And there have been too many times in my life where I've sacrificed sleep. So it's something I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed to admit. There are times where I will sleep three, three and a half, four hours in a night. And uh, those have been really tough times. But uh, alhamdulillah, I've tried to work on that and improve that. At this point in my life, I'm sleeping. I'm trying to sleep about six hours a night. That's the regular schedule. The other thing that's important to realize is this concept of sleep cycles, right? So if you sleep half an hour if you take a half an hour nap in the middle of the day, many times that will compensate for a whole sleep cycle at night, which is an hour and a half. So you can actually optimize your sleep and get a little bit less sleep by playing these tricks and dividing the sleep up. That's fascinating. I'm asking these questions because I want to like get a sense of what the most people can try and achieve in their day. One selfish question I have is that I've tried to do the whole nap thing but I sometimes just struggle. It takes time to get to sleep. And then it almost, you know, I feel like it defeats the purpose, but perhaps I need to just stick at it. And then eventually I'll just be able to knock off straight away. I don't know if you've got any tips for that. Yeah, absolutely. So number one, just starting with the core, how much sleep should you be getting? Right. And there are certainly times in my life where I've gone to the unhealthy side, but I believe the right amount of sleep for most people. There's a lot of genetic research on this, and they found that some people have that four-hour gene or five-hour gene where they just don't need that much sleep at night. But most of us aren't like that. Most of us need about seven and a half hours, which would be equal to, that's five sleep cycles, right? So what I've tried to do is say, if Allah is expecting us, not, not expecting us, but Allah prefers that we wake up for the hajjah and pray, then they'll take up some time out of your sleep. And there must be some barakah that comes along with that. So maybe instead of seven and a half hours, we need six. And that is probably the ideal. And if you add to that the nap, like I said, that compensates for quite a bit. Now, getting back to your question about the nap. So when I first decided to start taking naps, I remember distinctly it was 2010, I wasn't a nap person. I couldn't fall asleep. And I knew if I tried to take a nap, I wouldn't be able to fall asleep. And if I did fall asleep, maybe I wouldn't be able to wake up. So before I even started my first nap, I started telling myself, convincing myself 
I am the type of person that takes naps. I am the type of person that takes naps. And these are some things that you read in books like Atomic Habits, right? Where it says, make your identity what you want it to be. Like, don't tell yourself, oh, this works like this. Oh, I know I've tried this before. It doesn't work. So I just convinced myself that I am the kind of person that takes naps. And the very first time I tried to take a nap, I actually fell asleep. So that was interesting. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, NASA's determined the optimum time to take a nap. And it's, I forget if it's 22, 24, 26 minutes, something like that. So you either sleep for an hour and a half, but if you can't, you try and sleep for 24 minutes. And I try and do this. And what they've found is that even if you close your eyes and you actually never fall asleep during that time, and you've just closed your eyes for 24 minutes and you're just relaxing and lying down and doing nothing, that's almost as good as having taken a nap. So it doesn't matter that you didn't fall asleep. Don't worry about that. Just go ahead, lie down, close your eyes. It gives your brain a rest. And then there's this um, app, I forget what it's called. I think it's like Super Memo 2 or something like that. And they talk about how spaced repetition works and how your memory is supposed to improve through naps. And they gathered, they crowdsourced, they gathered data from thousands of users to see how their memory storage and retrieval both improves when you take a nap. And they found that, there's like a, a chart there that shows you when you take a nap, how much your memory improves right after the nap. So they, they have this chart. It starts basically at fuzzer time. Your memory is absolutely the best. This isn't people subjectively writing down, hey, my memory was good. My memory was bad. This is people actually measuring, saving data in their brain and then retrieving it from their brain. And you can see it's strongest at fuzzer time. It declines throughout the day and it just keeps going down, 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 down. And if you take a nap for the people who took a nap, immediately after the nap, the memory goes back up, not all the way up to the fudger level, but like halfway or more than halfway back up to the fudger level. So it's incredible data. And of course, we know taking a nap is sunnah and we all say that, but to really realize the benefits and study the science behind it, it makes an amazing difference in your life. And I can't imagine my life without a nap. So I really encourage everyone to take one. Fascinating. And then I presume that when you go to work, you've got some kind of office where you can just, you know, shut the door and do that. Or perhaps a parking spot where you can uh, go and sleep in the car. Ah, yeah. Very good idea. Very good idea. So, Sheikh I wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, forays into finance, right? So you've done a master's in finance. You've also got one in Islamic finance. This is an area that I think is of interest to you. And, you know, I know, I know you work with some fintechs as well. Yeah. How did this all come about? And, you know, what are you up to in this space? I'm sure we have uh, some, something to share in common here, but what I saw was an extreme lack of financial literacy across almost the entire Muslim community. And also some, I would say, unbalanced mindsets towards money. So I would encounter older people, many times immigrants who were just afraid to invest because they were too concerned about losing money through their investment. But they were, in return, losing purchasing power every year as inflation occurs and they give their money away in zakat. On the other hand, I encountered many younger folks who were just throwing money into, you know, now we call them meme stocks, but into something equivalent like that. So people are just throwing money into, you know, now meme stocks, cryptocurrency. I'm not saying crypto is all bad. I'm just saying people are just throwing money without understanding them. And or dealing with stock options, exotic derivatives, not understanding understanding if these instruments are halal or not halal, or even if they're wise investments or not. So 
you know, Islamic finance, as you know, is a specialized field, right? And not all Islamic scholars are well-versed in it. And sometimes they might have the Islamic knowledge, but they don't have the nuanced understanding of conventional finance. And what's required is both. And unfortunately, there's not that many people who are well-versed in both. You, you don't find too many people like Sheikh Faraz Adam or Sheikh Joe Bradford. So what motivated me to get my master's and become a mufti was to develop that specialized knowledge in both of those domains. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, now, now I'm alhamdulillah, Sharia advisor to uh, Zoya Finance. It's an app that you use on your phone to determine if a stock is Sharia compliant or not. Ahaz Invest, it's a robo-advisor to help Muslims invest. There's a halalinvestors.com, which helps people with uh, evaluating stocks as well. And cryptocurrencies, Cordoba funds, it's a, a real estate fund. I also spend a lot of my time teaching finance and zakah seminars. And I really love talking about how Islamic finance is really no different than ethical finance. Because for a lot of people, Islamic finance becomes about ratios and compliance. And, and really, in the end, is all Islamic finance is trying to teach you is be just, be fair, don't cheat, don't deceive. And then I love teaching why or how riba works and why it's bad, because a lot of people struggle to understand that. So I, I try to simplify that and also coach people in how to invest in a halal way and how to model their 401ks and, and things like that. So, you know, one thing I would like to highlight is that I think it's important for people to pursue in both their secular and religious careers is that people should find some sort of a niche and develop an expertise because we no longer live in a world where you should just be a generalist. You need to master and develop specific areas of focus because that's what benefits and that's what gets you ahead nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've been talking about this teaching that you do in the community and the journey that you've been on. I imagine there's a lot of people that approach you who are perhaps starting off or uh, thinking about switching careers. What is your advice to people like this? And are there any other patterns that you see emerging within our community? Yeah. So people approach from both perspectives, either because they're looking for career success and, and they see that I've spent a fair amount of time in the tech career or they approach because of uh, finance advice. I see a lot of people coming and asking questions about finding jobs, for example. And one of the patterns I've seen very consistently is people pursuing degrees that won't lead to a job. So someone will study physics, by the way, nothing wrong with physics, but broadly speaking, a job in physics will be what? You either become a teacher or you become a researcher. And when I ask this person, which path do you want to pursue? They say, oh, no, no, I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to be a researcher. I'm just studying physics. Why? Oh, because I like physics. Well, do you see a job in the future? I'm not really sure. I'll figure that out later. Or they might get a bachelor's in psychology, for example. Again, nothing wrong with psychology, but they don't intend to pursue a master's after that. And generally, a bachelor's in psychology needs to be followed by a master's if you're going to get into, again, research or career as a psychologist or something like that. So there's just too many examples of people who pursue a degree and that doesn't result in an occupation that's aligned with their interests. So I actually advise a lot in terms of pursuing something that you think you will actually get a job in, right? There should be some sort of line of sight from what you're studying to what your job is. The other thing I've encouraged people to do is not rush through university. Take your time, 
and try different things out because that helps a lot in the career. So for example, taking classes from different disciplines. Okay, you're a physics major, take psychology classes. You're a engineering major, take some English classes. And people are shy to do this, but it really helps to have two majors or a specialization, something like that. Participate in extracurriculars, get to know people, develop your soft skills. Most importantly, get an internship. That's what helped me land my first job out of university and for almost all of my friends. And a lot of people don't seek internships and then they struggle when they graduate. The other thing I encourage people to do in university is get some sort of a service job. What I mean by that, I worked at the cafeteria serving food and cleaning tables. And a lot of my friends either drove a taxi or worked at Dunkin' Donuts or a laundromat. And that really builds you as a person. It teaches you customer service and it helps you learn how to work with people. And then on the finance side, I think the most important piece of advice I give young people is invest, 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 and invest early. Time in market matters a lot more than timing the market. Let me say that again. The amount of time your money is in the market matters a lot more than timing the market. When I was teaching my kids finance, I had my eldest drop a spreadsheet of what happens if you start investing in your 20s versus the 30s. So you compare two people with the same frugal spending habits who are investing and saving money. And the difference over years ends up being millions of dollars. It almost doesn't matter which stock you pick. It almost doesn't matter what time you get in. What matters is when you start. So if you start investing early, invest consistently, hold for the long run, and don't sell unless you have to, you will do well. You will also have less worry, less stress. You don't have to look at the stock prices every day, and you don't need to panic when the market's doing what it's doing right now. And it's all over the place, right? So yeah, that is the best advice I can offer to the young people. Makes sense. And uh, as we now approach the end, I want to ask you quickly, what is one thing that gets you really quite optimistic about the future of perhaps the world or the future of the Muslim Ummah? And then one thing that worries you as well? Interesting question. I think... Whilst you think (laughs) one thing that worries me is this, the speeding up of technology where the cycles get shorter and shorter and shorter and where that leads, I think is quite a worrying thing as well. So with the rise of the metaverse and with tech enhancements to the human body happening now, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. It's just something that worries me, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, I can't disagree with what you're saying there. I'm seeing things which give me optimism and give me reason for worry at the same time, right? So one of the companies I advise is, it's called Tertil. And Tertil is an app that you install on your phone. You put on the app and if someone's reading Quran or if you read Quran to it, it will go exactly the place in the Mus'haf where the Quran is being read from. And uh, one of the questions I was asked to give an opinion on was we have deaf people who are praying and They have, imagine being, and I never thought about this before. Imagine being a deaf person in prayer. You can't hear Quran at all. And so the question was, can deaf people use this tertil application in their salah? And so when the imam is reading in loud prayer, the deaf person is able to follow along in the mushaf because that portion of the mushaf gets highlighted. 
And I remember just being amazed by the question. It was like, subhanAllah, we're living in a time where something like this is possible, where a deaf person who's never been able to hear this before can now actually follow along in the mushaf when the salah is being read. Beautiful, right? At the same time, technology is, I feel like, you know, being in the tech industry, you would think I would have more optimistic view towards this. But what we are doing to ourselves in terms of spending so much time indoors really takes us away from what I think are the ayat of Allah. Of course, Allah has created everything, right? The problem is when we spend too much of our time indoors, and I'm looking around the room I'm in, and there's walls and there's lights and there's computers and tables and furniture. All of the things that are created in this room were created by humans, created by man. And so when we spend so much time indoors looking at things that we think we've created, somehow we think we are such an amazing superior species that has so much capability and science and we're, we're just great. But when you step out, you start realizing that we're nothing, right? You look at the trees, you look at the oceans, you look at the sky, you look at what's out there in the world. And we're just spending more and more time getting disconnected from nature and too much time indoors. And I don't think that's a good thing. And things like the, the amount of time people spend on social media, what happens is you're standing outside, you're walking on the street, but you have your phone in front of you. And so you're really not present. Same thing happens with the, the metaverse, like you said. It's, people are spending too much time now in this virtual reality and living away from the real life. That worries me quite a bit. But then what gives me optimism also is the benefits that you get as well. Like I said, like the Tertil app and so on. There's new things, new capabilities, and inshallah, we can use that to understand our own deen better, to become better Muslims, to connect ourselves with the Quran more, right? Like it's 2022 now, so we can connect ourselves with the Quran so much more easily. Open an app, stream it in the car, listen to it in the podcast, and it's just so accessible. So many translations available now. You don't have to read the Quran in Arabic. You can go to any language of your choice and connect to it directly. So, and we're not of those people, of course, who, who feel like we have to connect through a scholar. Yes, we have to connect through a scholar for our advanced fiqh rulings and have specialized training for that, but everyone can connect with the Quran. So this Tertil app is a great example of that. But there's so many more examples where we can have that direct access. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Tertil app as well. It's interesting that when you were talking about the deaf example, my nephew is actually, uh, he was, I think, the first person one of the very, very first people to get a double cochlear implant. So before that, he was profoundly deaf and he got this at the age of one. And that was when he could first hear, you know, for the first time. So he now, mashallah, has gone ahead and he finished his hif, uh, I think it was last year or the year before. So because of technology, someone like him, he's the first ever such person. I, I think he probably would be the first person in his situation who's ever done Hifth of the Quran, even though he's completely, you know, uh, if you look at it biologically deaf. So yeah, technology, you know, has, I think, has a lot to be optimistic for as well. SubhanAllah, that is an amazing story. And I'm just smiling, sitting here smiling because of, uh, wow, <laughs> what a story. Yeah. And uh, his parents are obviously very, very happy because you can imagine when when he was born, they they thought that, you know, this boy would never you know, be able to function normally. And alhamdulillah, he's, he's excelled. Last request or the last question uh, from you, Sheikh, is 
let's say someone doesn't want to become a scholar, not, not everyone can always be a scholar or go down the Islamic studies path. What is the, the absolute minimum or the critical things that people should study regardless of who they are and you know whether or not they want to be a scholar? Yeah, you know, a lot of times the scholars will say you need to know obviously your five pillars of faith. And so, you know, you need to know the minimum rulings around them, right? How to pray, how to fast, how to go for Hajj. And then when you get married, you need the rules around that. So how do you get married? How does divorce work? And then when you're dealing with business transactions, what are the laws around financial transactions? What's allowed? What's not allowed? I think those are absolutely a must. But something that we tend to miss out on more is the ethics side of things as um you know, the religion of Islam is, as, as Sheikh Akram says as well, it's it's 80% ethics. And so focusing on that and connecting ourselves to Allah, I think, is something we don't focus on enough. And, and we tend to go to one extreme or the other. So we, either we become too much enamored with, with, uh, with our feelings and emotions and uh, aligning those and, and purification of the heart, which is a good thing, or we get too focused on following the laws. So finding some middle balance where we realize who Allah is and studying not just the attributes of Allah as in does Allah have hands or does he sit on a throne, but really understanding how Allah is there, how Allah loves us, how he is wise, how he is just. And if we really can understand that, we can orient our lives and the rest of the religion of Islam, I think, falls into place. So we all understand our relationship with our mothers, right? She loves us. She cares for us. She's wise. She tries to take care of us, all of these things. But somehow we do not develop that same relationship with Allah, even though Allah has described himself as being in some ways like our mothers, right? He loves us more than our mothers do. So yes, I think we should all focus on the important aspects that we need for our ibadat in our daily muamalat. But it's important. And I think the best way to do this, and, and I was talking about the Quran earlier, is to connect with the Quran. So in my Eid khutbah, I made a big point about just pick up the Quran. Just pick it up and read it. Even if you do it five minutes a day, do it every single day, do it consistently, approach it as something that's going to guide you, right? Quran says, Al Quran Hudalinas, Hudalil Mutakin. So Quran says, Huda, 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 right? It's guidance, guidance, guidance. Let's use it as the guidance. So if we want to, what's the minimum level of knowledge we should have? I don't know what the minimum level of knowledge is, but what's the approach that we should have? Just read a little bit of Quran every day and understand it, think about it, apply it. And I think that is what Allah wants from us, is that little bit of effort consistently every day to connect with the Quran. Amazing. Sheikh Omar, it's been a pleasure. Uh, we really appreciate your time. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put barakah in all that you do and accept from you uh, and accept from us all. And I look forward to us doing this again, I guess, in a few years' time. I'll ask you about how the Twitter takeover went, if it goes ahead. <laughs> no comment on that right now. <laughs> I would expect no less from you, from a man like you. Barakallahu feek and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakumullahu khairan barakallahu feek and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com. 
as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.